0: Hello, and welcome to Unheard Youth. We are a podcast created at the Centre for Race and Culture, focusing on newcomer youth voices all across Canada. I'm your host, Rose Eva Forgs-Jenkins. In this episode, I sit down with Nehiyo language instructor, Ruben Quinn. Ruben talks about his work with teaching an Indigenous language. We also chat about the relationship between Indigenous people and settlers to Canada. We talk about the history of that relationship and where it stands today. I wanted to include this conversation in the podcast because the topic of Indigenous and newcomer relations came up often in the discussions that newcomer youth were having. I also think that when we're discussing the topics of identity, migration and belonging within a Canadian context, An Indigenous perspective is necessary and important. I wanted to make a note that this is a conversation on Indigenous and newcomer relationships. Reuben Quinn is from the Nehio Nation, but there are over 600 different First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities all over Canada. Each of these communities have their own perspective and stories when it comes to Indigenous and newcomer relationships. I am very grateful that Reuben allowed me to sit down with him and chat with him about his point of view in the first part of the conversation. Reuben introduces himself and his story. without further ado, here is Reuben
1: Quinn. <laughs> So uh, I'm glad to be here. My name is Ruben Quinn. I come from Treaty 6 territory. My grandfather had land on the south side and uh, through some... Uh, situations and circumstances, uh, they lost that land to the people of uh, Fort Edmonton. And so my grandfather moved from the south side of Edmonton. He went to uh, St. Paul de Métis, they call it at one time. And so he was there for a bit. And then he went on to uh, Kikano Métis Settlement and, in his last uh, part of his journey, moved to Eleanor Lake, uh, which is where he's buried now. Uh, he was a signature to the adhesion to Treaty Six. So I come from uh, I come from Sad Lake, and uh, my grandmother had moved to uh, Enoch, and then from Enoch, my grandfather. My dad's dad went to uh, Saddle Lake. And that's where I was born. In I was born in Saint Paul. Actually, I was the first in my family to be born in a hospital. My older brothers and sisters were born at home, and my younger sister and I were born in a hospital in Saint Paul. But uh, yeah, so I'm uh, I, I live in Edmonton now, and. And what I do is I pass on a writing system we call Nehiyo Atakipayikannak. Atak is a, uh, a spirit. So we call the uh, those celestial bodies in the sky, we call them uh, Atakwak, spirits. And each of us has Atak, a spirit. And those writings that i that i pass on that were given to us uh we call them attack spirit markers so that system was given to us in 1971 when we were liberated from residential school they call them schools but they were actually factories for warehousing people uh very few people uh, early on anyways, were allowed to go past grade 9 unless they were going to go into a seminary. That rule changed. It was a law, actually, and that changed in 1951. So in 1971, 20 years later, the Oblates left, the nuns and the priests left Blue Cools, and they decided that people from uh, the nearby reservations there Decided to bring education to the youth, us, and so they went and uh, did some research and went and got this writing system, which had been underground for probably over uh, about a hundred years, and so that's the system that I teach in Edmonton now, and uh, it's it's going very well. It helps to uh, it helps with the brain. It helps also to connect, connect with the land. The language I speak is uh, is connected to the land here. And one of the things that uh, colonialism has done for my people, Nehiyoak, and all uh, Turtle Islanders, I call, I'll call them, the different nations, is uh, colonialism has disconnected us from our culture. And what the culture is, to simplify it, is uh, the four Ds, dance, dialect, dress, and diet. We've been disconnected from that. Uh, It was a really tremendous push to eliminate our languages and our ways of life, our systems, especially our our system of belief. And it was uh, very successful by the colonial powers It benefited the colonizers a great deal to bring forth policies and uh, make our ways illegal to speak the language, to live in our our faithful ways, uh, the different ceremonies that we have. So I talk about that when I'm teaching, passing on the language. But Of course, I am not a fluent speaker. I'm semi-fluent. I know enough just to pass on the system. And then I try to uh, get people to learn more about the language, which is usually the best place for that is in ceremony, because that's where they talk the Nehiyo language. Anyways, uh, yes, I'm I'm quite old. I'm 59 years old. I'm just starting to learn quite a bit, on un- uncovering a lot of things that were not available to us, because of uh, policies and uh, fear.
0: For the next section of this episode on newcomer and Indigenous relationships, I wanted to learn more about what Ruben's Nehio language lessons were like. Ruben was very generous and allowed me to sit in on and record one of his introductory lessons. Here's Ruben talking to his class about the Nehio language system and culture.
1: In 1971, these four females went to a man in Goodfish Lake. His name was Behail, to get the writing system from from that man. The, the system I'm going to show you. It had gone underground for about a hundred years. It was underground and. They went to this man, and he he was uh, able to pass down a writing system to them, these four females. And along the way, there were also a, a people that were doing research on our societies and our nations. And one thing that they discovered was that as far as... Uh, politics and organization was concerned, we had a schematic hierarchy whereby there were uh, what they call miteok is uh, undisputed leaders and then there were blanket people then there were uh, revered and respected elders and then there were uh ceremony people in that order and who kept all of that in in intact there was a group of people called revered and respected females they had their a responsibility and that those responsibilities weren't limited to these two things I'm going to talk about and one of the responsibilities was to look after medicines like a pharmacy I guess and the other responsibility was also to take care of the language so the nations were able to flourish to such an extent that they have a great range and domain over this continent, the Nehio language would go from the interior of British Columbia all the way across this land into the United States to the east coast, all along the eastern seaboard down into Florida there are people also who went to South America and had, we have links to the language, their language system there. They, uh, one example is uh, the word we use for fire, iskotel. They have the same word in South America. So these uh, females, they're, they're, they had a great great responsibility. There were 600,000 words in the language prior to European contact. Today, there, the Canadian government will make a claim that we have about 30,000 words. So that's over half a million words that we've lost. Uh, and when we were in contact with the European colonizers, what they did was they set out to terminate our systems. In 1951, legislation was overturned that forbade Indigenous people from practicing our language and our culture. So one of the things that started coming back were the idea of they had a really important function in our community and when our communities were operating according to those standards that had been passed down everything went well so I often say Everything will get back to balance once we put the woman back in her place. And where is that place but that position of authority and power, decision making? Because we come from a matriarchal society, and this patriarchy set out to eliminate our ways. And that way, those ways worked since time immemorial.
0: You just heard a small sample of what it's like to be in one of Ruben's Nehio language classes that are given at the Center for Race and Culture. Now we go back to my conversation with Ruben and talk about the history of newcomer and Indigenous relationships. And so I was wondering if you could speak uh, specifically about uh, your work and your experiences with newcomers to Canada.
1: Well, here is my experience from newcomers in Canada. Canada was uh, was built on racism. It was built on the idea of genocide. In the uh, 16th century, there were people that saw that there was a an opportunity to get resources from a different land. The resources in Europe were dwindling. So they came here, and in in Europe, they had a class system. There were the elite, the upper class, the upper middle class, the middle class, the lower middle class, the lower class, the lower class and then, of course, what they call the dregs of humanity, the really low class. I guess, kind of like uh, how people view people that are uh, Europeans that are living trailer courts nowadays. That that class of people, and this was created by the those people in in the upper echelon, and those people in the upper echelon had a great disdain for. The lower classes, they they would never invite them to break bread with them at the dinner table. It was unheard of to do that. So Oliver Twist and all of those th- other stories, they're nice, but they're, they're far from reality. So when these people found that there were resources here, they started infiltrating the other classes of people. The upper echelon found out that there is lots of land to be had here, so they they uh, actively set out to to find people that would come over here. They started uh, to tell them, "Listen, we have land over here. You just have to go take it. There, there are savages living there." And their their pitch was, "Listen, those people." They don't use that land, and, and you, you're white like us. So now the lower classes felt like they were being included. Very good uh, propaganda, actually. But the lower classes were also taught to have a disdain for Indigenous people here. That carried over into my experience in the 1960s in... Uh, uh, when we go into town, I would have to wait in a, what was called a livery stable. Little uh, indigenous children weren't uh, weren't welcome in the shops and the stores. And then, in 1967, in in the town of Saint Paul, they built a the world's first flying saucer landing pad to welcome all the aliens from all across the universe. They wanted the the people from the surrounding uh, indigenous communities to come into their town, spend their money, but leave. Leave as as, uh, quickly as possible. So my experience with newcomers has been that there's a, a great disdain from them towards my people. When I go and and welcome newcomers i try to learn their language for instance iska warhan walal is a greeting in somalia and that has not been reciprocated as often as i would like the newcomers don't come to to me and say hey how do you say this word or what can i do you know, what do you want to be known as? I understand you're not Cree. See, we're given the label Cree by uh, Europeans. I'm not a Cree, I'm actually a Nehio. Cree is someone, a name that someone else gave me, another another body of people labeled me Cree. And so I call myself Nehio. So when I'm looking towards newcomers, From way back, I tried to learn uh, ways to help those people come and be comfortable on this land. The Filipinos, for instance, they have a wonderful language, uh, and I don't know the original way of greeting, but now they use komastasis because I believe they've been uh, colonized as well by several different uh, groups of peoples, different nations. What I, what I like to do is if we can have an understanding, they, these newcomers coming to this land, they they have an understanding of how the people are here. You'll see my people walking around, and some of them aren't doing too well, maybe drinking alcohol. So those are the people that you immediately get exposed to, and and it reinforces those stereotypes that are given to newcomers, but there's there are people from the other 80, 85% of the people are actually being productive as far as uh, providing for their families is concerned. But those aren't the ones we see. The ones we see are downtown pushing Safeway carts, and, and it's kind of... It's, it's really sad when I see my brothers and sisters pushing Safeway carts. I always think, that person should be driving a Lexus. That person should be driving a Cadillac. And I look at somebody else and I think, oh, that person should be driving a Pontiac Sunfire. Well, anyways, nonetheless, uh, there's indigenous people here who are marginalized and... We've been given a system where we've been trained to to be a certain way by organizations and institutions. And because of uh, systemic racism, there's there's uh, of course, uh, my people have been criminalized. You go anywhere in a world where there has been colonization, the indigenous population is usually the most criminalized. And the colonizers, very intelligent people, will find ways to criminalize. So uh, what I would like to do, my personal experience with newcomers is that I try to learn a little bit about them. I know there's a lot of uh, hardships that they came from.
0: I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about how colonialism has affected all sorts of people all over the world. An article that I found really interesting was published in the CBC in 2015, around the time when Canada was receiving a lot of uh, Syrian refugees. And the article was entitled Will Canadians be as generous to First Nations as they are to Syrian refugees? So there was someone who was from Kenya, and so Kenya gained independence from Britain in 1963, but the effects of colonization were still present. I'm sure they're still present now. And a a quote from him is that he said, We are people of the same life, people of the same culture. We have gone through the same colonial experience. We have more things in common than divide us, and it's better to know an indigenous person to live next to them than to stay away from them. Is that uh, something that you agree with?
1: Absolutely, as long as we know that there's clear boundaries. When the Treaty of Niagara was being negotiated, uh, the Europeans were small in number, very small in number, and the Indigenous uh, people were great. So a treaty was was, uh, made and and it was uh, the Europeans who sought this treaty who wanted a place to live. And so the Indigenous people, from what I understand, helped them through the first few winters and, and uh, helped them with food. But in the Treaty of Niagara, both uh, Euro- the European nations and the Indigenous uh, people, the nations, would ride in their own canoes alongside each other and what that symbolizes is that the europeans would live by their own laws the indigenous people would live by our own laws and if there were infractions made uh laws broken our people would would deal with the offender the europeans same thing and then what the Europeans said at the time was that we will bring our own food. You don't have to worry about so they they brought in uh, um, European cows, pigs, and chickens, and other animals. Oxen, I think, were in there. And they uh, those original people only wanted six inches of topsoil to to uh, to grow crops. So that was agreed upon. Over time, what happened was the uh, the Europeans knew that in order to conquer the people of this land, they needed to get rid of the food source, so they systematically eliminated uh, the food sources from this land. Uh, the most uh, dramatic of that, of course, was the elimination of the buffalo that uh, there were four great herds here on Turtle Island from South America to way up north in Northwest Territories. There were four great herds, a numbering in the hundreds of millions. By 1885, Europeans and others, including indigenous people, had uh, hunted the buffalo to near extin- extinction. There were 500 left in the middle of Montana by 1885. So our food source was destroyed. And so, and then as well, throughout this time, the Europeans were gaining numbers. They were getting greater numbers. And the European cows were propagating, the pigs and chickens. So uh, our positions reversed. And European canadians took good advantage of this so when people are talking about getting together i think it's important that a mutual respect be be first and foremost as far as uh, understanding each other's uh, ways of life uh, uh, respecting boundaries and respecting each other's belief systems, I think that's important uh, to uh, also be open to uh, to learning about the others, the others' ways, and so that they have uh, broaden and enlarge that perspective, so that the ignorance isn't that much of a an issue.
0: Hmm. How do you see newcomer and and indigenous relations going in the future?
1: If we have to lower our defenses, where newcomers are taught that they have to be alert when it comes to dealing with indigenous people, they have to be wary of us and and once if we can get rid of that mentality and realize we all bleed red, we all have a similar DNA, we're all one race, and that's the human race. So once we get to that realization, then we can look at each other's cultures And see what we like about each other and how we can be helpful with one another or else just leave each other alone is is another way as well. Like I I wouldn't go and live with the Hutterites who are very, very uh, independent, but I wouldn't go live with them. I love their ways. Uh, I support them, and I think to support each other and give each other encouragement about our separate ways and where we could come together, celebrate, uh, rejoice.
0: Yeah, one one last question, I think, uh, just to have a nice summary. is uh, Let's say there's a house next to yours and it goes for sale and a Somalian family moves in there, what, what would you want them to know about you?
1: i probably have a cup of tea with them and start talking to them about the history and then start talking to them about uh, how circumstances born out of racism and genocidal policies has brought us to where we are now and then I would make sure that they had the facts. Because I can go on and create a lot of uh, embellishments, and that wouldn't help anybody sticking to the facts. So I would tell these newcomers about the systems that created the psyche that that a lot of uh, my people have nowadays and about the the treaties and how they were broken and uh, only used to benefit uh Europeans and where we're at now as because of our indomitable spirit and our resilience as people we go back and we go c- connect with our ways our cultural ways and realize, hey, this really is good stuff here, what the ancestors were trying to to uh, leave with us. Our worldview, that everything is spirit, and love comes from the fourth dimension. And that's the only way.
0: That concludes this episode of the Unheard Youth Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode entitled Newcomer and Indigenous Relationships. A huge thank you to Ruben Quinn for being my guest on the podcast and allowing me to record part of his lesson. I think that sitting in on this lesson allowed me to think more deeply about the important role of language when it comes to preserving and experiencing a culture there are a huge number of Indigenous people who've been disconnected from their own language. I'm very privileged to be allowed to get a small glimpse of what language revitalization can look like. A very big thank you to Ruben Quinn and his class as well for allowing me to record in this important space. We would also like to thank our friends and partners at CJSR, 88.5 FM and the Edmonton Community Foundation. This project has been made possible, in part, by the Government of Canada. Ce projet a été rendu possible en partie grâce au gouvernement du Canada. Thank you to Chevenji for providing the music featured in the podcast. Make sure you check us out on social media. You can reach us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Unheard Youth Podcast. This episode was produced by me, Rose Eva Forks-Jenkins. We produce this show at the Centre for Race and Culture in Edmonton, Alberta, the Miskuchewa Sky Gun. The Centre for Race and Culture acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory, traditional homelands for many Indigenous peoples, including the Nehio, Soto, Nitsitapi, Métis, Dene, Ojibwe and Nakota. We pay our respects to the elders past and present who call this land home. With this acknowledgement, we remind ourselves of the responsibilities we have as treaty people to understand our shared colonial history, hear the stories Indigenous people tell us about the inequities they still live today, and recommit ourselves to working together towards a just future.